Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week 31, the book of Romans, chapter 13. I think if there's a single overarching thing for Paul in, in Romans chapter 12, I think it had to be that believers should not retaliate when we're wronged, nor seek revenge when we're insulted or offended. Now to be clear, this is by no means speaking about believers avoiding the criminal justice system when a crime has been committed. There's no suggestion that if someone physically attacks and harms you, that you're to be passive or silent or you shouldn't reasonably defend yourself. Or that if someone steals your property, that you shouldn't report it to the proper authorities, even prosecute the thief. Rather, we must remember that the context of Paul's ruling about non-retaliation has very much to do with the Middle Eastern culture of his time that was developed around a shame and honor system of society. Now don't become confused between the terms shamed and ashamed. Shame is in a shame and honor society has to do with your social status. Ashamed is a familiar emotion in Western society because it's based on feelings of guilt. So shame and honor societies, you see, are completely consumed with their concern for social status. This was the way of all Bible era cultures. That included the Hebrews, especially of the earlier days before the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses was an extraordinary move away from shame and honor because it sought to draw Israel towards a social structure that was based on innocence and guilt. But that transformation would only happen slowly, imperfectly, unevenly. So even 13 centuries later, in Paul's day, while Jewish society generally followed Torah laws and halakha, traditions of the elders, and they were judged according to guilt or innocence as it came to obeying God's laws, long entrenched elements of shame and honor remain part of Jewish cultural behavior. Now, shame and honor societies have their basis in tribalism. And so the people are group thinkers. Group thinkers. That is, conforming to the group, to its ancient traditions, that's always the standard that's to be reached. Individualism is seen as rebellion. Going against the group. It's a bad thing. And the person who seeks individualism is shunned. 
Islam, the Arab world, the bulk of Middle Eastern societies of the modern era are strongly shame and honor societies. At the root of Chinese, Japanese, Korean, other Far Eastern societies is shame and honor. Behaviorally speaking, the thought of people who adhere to such a social philosophy is much less about acting rightly or wrongly according to some laws or regulations. It's much more of acting honorably or shamefully. That's decided by centuries of customs. These aren't word plays I'm giving you. Right does not equate to honorable. Wrong does not equate to shameful. Therefore, since right and wrong, guilt, innocence, takes a back seat to what is shameful and honorable, meeting social norms, then this type of society also has less of a concept of personal guilt at least of the way we in the West think of guilt. So people rarely deal with the emotion of being ashamed. Acting shamefully brings dishonor to a person, but not a sense of guilt, not a sense of being ashamed. And this is because shame is not the result of being guilty of, of breaking a law or a regulation, but shame rather is the dreaded and undesirable social status of somebody who's lost their honor. They have lost their place in mainstream society. Again, shame and honor are definitions of social status and they are not, generally not the result of doing right or wrong. It's not about criminal activity. It's not about morality. It's not about ethics. A person living in a shame and honor society is always either in a cultural condition of shame or a cultural condition of honor. There's no middle ground. Now what shame and honor amounts to? Well, that's defined by long-held tribal customs and traditions, and therefore it varied to a degree among the many and different cultures. So it wasn't hard in Bible times for a traveler in a foreign place to find himself running for his life after inadvertently committing some type of unintended insult against a local, which within that particular society brought shame upon that person. We of the West now, see, we can scoff, we can kind of snicker at this and think, oh my, how ignorant, how primitive. But folks, we're the minority. The bulk of the people on this planet in present day times live in a shame and honor society. Or at least shame and honor plays a very significant role in everyday matters of their lives. So we would do well 
to understand the basics of how it operates. Not understanding the shame and honor systems of society, not respecting their powerful influence on decisions and behavior that rises above the value of life. This is why all of the West's intrusions into Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya and Syria and into Israel's affairs with the, their hostile Arab neighbors. This is why they do nothing but muck things up all the more. And it totally confounds Western governments. Well, by Paul's day, God had been patiently working for centuries to wring the shame and honor mentality out of his people, Israel. Now, ironically, the Roman Empire was attempting to do the same by transforming every nation under its power into a society of laws, such that taking revenge for being shamed was itself a crime. Yet ancient elements of shame and honor still were embedded in even Roman Hellenistic culture. Why am I telling you all this this morning? Because understanding this reality of Paul's day tells us what led Paul to speak to the believers of Rome, Jews and Gentiles, about not retaliating, not seeking revenge, and enveloping his regulation against it with the foundational Torah commandment from Leviticus 19 to love your neighbor as yourself. The shame and honor system was alive and well and it went directly against the most foundational principles of the biblical Torah. Now, as we open Romans chapter 13, we're going to find Paul applying these principles of non-retaliation, of loving our neighbor among our fellow man, to our relationship now with our governing authorities. Now, that's an interesting one. However, I have to be honest. I personally find the opening verses of Romans 13 to be quite problematic. If we take these verses simplistically at face value, as we remove from them this context, all-important context, of the shame and honor society in which Paul created these rulings. This is because if we try to apply what Paul said as is to modern Western democracies based not on shame and honor but rather on guilt and innocence, they create some of the worst sorts of doctrines and injustices. Thus, just as it's critical that we take the law of Moses more in their spirit than in their letter, in order to transcend culture and time, it is equally important to do the same thing with the New Testament rulings and sayings of Yeshua and of Paul and of others. Some rulings and sayings can indeed just leap across 
time and cultural boundaries literally and stay fully intact. Dietary laws, for example. But others of them, say the death penalty for adultery, the law against intercropping, these have to kind of be massaged all right, and, and deeply and prayerfully pondered in order to properly apply them to the entirely different societal conditions and government structures of the 21st century. So with that as a background now, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1417. Everyone is to obey the governing authorities. For there is no authority that is not from God. And the existing authorities have been placed where they are by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities is resisting what God has instituted, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are no terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you like to be unafraid of the person in authority? Then simply do what's good, and you'll win his approval. For he is God's servant there for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid. Because it's not for nothing that he holds the power of the sword, for he is God's servant. There is an avenger to punish wrongdoers. Another reason to obey besides fear of punishment is for the sake of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's public officials, constantly attending to these duties. Pay everyone what he's owed. If you owe the tax collector, pay your taxes. If you owe the revenue collector, pay revenue. If you owe someone respect, pay him respect. If you owe someone honor, pay him honor. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For whoever loves his fellow human being has fulfilled the Torah. For the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covenant, and any others are summed up in this, this one rule love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not do harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fullness of Torah. Now besides all this, you know at what point of history we stand. So it's high time for you to rouse yourselves from sleep, for the final deliverance is, is nearer than when we first came to trust. The night's almost over, the day's almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness. Arm ourselves with the weapons of light. Let us live properly as people do in the daytime, not partying and getting drunk, not engaging in sexual immorality and other excesses, not quarreling and being jealous. Instead, clothe yourselves with the Lord Yeshua the Messiah. Don't waste your time thinking about how to provide for the sinful desires of your old nature. Now to be sure, we must begin by understanding 
that any governmental concept of democracy or republic is nowhere present in Paul's thoughts. Even the Roman Empire's attempt to be a republic that was more responsive to the people is a far cry from how we would envision a republic in our day. Because first and foremost, these senators of Rome were appointed by Roman magistrates and there was no election. And the emperor was still considered to be a god. And he could override any decision of the Roman Senate on that basis. So Paul's world was a world of tyrants and monarchs and kings and petty potentates that ruled autocratically. He couldn't possibly have envisioned Western-style democracy any more than he could have envisioned the space shuttle or iPhones. <clears throat> See, this understanding has to be the basis of, of how we are to interpret the literal meaning of Paul's holocaust, that is the religious rulings for believers that we find in Romans chapter 13. However, there was this underlying mood of rebellion among the Jews, especially among the Zealots, mostly due to their expectation of a Messiah that would lead them out of oppression from Rome. And there was also this growing issue of believers in Yeshua trying to interweave the concept of being members of the kingdom of God with being members of the Roman Empire. This is a significant issue that Christianity continues to struggle with. Just what role should we allow government to play in our lives? And conversely, what role should believers play in the affairs of government? It's a big question. The big difference between Paul's day and our day is that we have considerably more to say in the matter. Even being able to help choose those who govern us and who create our societal laws. Thus Paul's first order of business is to say this. Whatever government you live under, honor it. Because God created human government and he allows it to function. However, the word usually translated in our Bibles, our English Bibles, as obey, probably in yours, which in Greek is hupotasso, more means to submit oneself to authority or control. It has the sense of reciprocal obligation, that is, both sides have duties and responsibilities while obeying is just a one-way street. The government decrees it, the citizen carries it out. Therefore, the King James Version actually uses the word subject instead of the word obey. And it's the much better translation, much nearer to exactly what that Greek word means. And King James Version, Romans 13.1, says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers.
for there is no power but of God the powers that are the powers that be are ordained of God now this is a very important distinction the blanket order to obey our government is quite different than our positive agreement that we are just simply subject to our government and the laws and the regulations that our government creates. It's not the same to understand that our government, any kind of government system, has the right and duty to enact laws that they have a measure of authority over us versus when the government says jump, our only option is to ask how high. But how to translate that from Paul's era to ours requires some thought. I mean, since in the West we have an actual individual input on who governs us, then we have the duty to be reliably informed and to make the best decision possible at the ballot box. However, as believers, we need to keep our voting preferences within the confines of loving our neighbor, at least as we think about ballot measures on taxation, schools, public facilities, immigration, social welfare, and the like. We must also constantly think about selecting those government leaders whom we believe will rule everyone equally and justly and without favor or corruption according to God's principles of justice and morality. I want to summarize. The principle that Paul is presenting is that as far as it's up to us, we are to have a peaceful coexistence with our government authorities and show them respect even with those leaders we don't agree because God requires it of us. The prophet Jeremiah, very interestingly, had to remind Israel of this God principle when they were conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and they were exiled to Babylon. Just as Paul is now reminding believers that this principle has not changed with the coming of Messiah. In Jeremiah 27, 5-11, we read this. God says, I made the earth, humankind, the animals on the earth, by my great power and my outstretched arm, and I give it to whom it seems right to me. For now I have given over all these lands to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel. I have also given him the wild animals to serve him. All the nations will serve him, his son and his grandson, until his own country gets its turn, at which time many nations and great kings will make him their slave. The nation and the kingdom that refuses to serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babel, that will not put their necks under the yoke of the king of Babel, I will punish, says Adonai with sword, famine, and plague until I've put an end to them through him. You, therefore, don't listen to your prophets or your diviners or your dreamers or your magicians or your sorcerers 
when they tell you, Oh, you won't be subject to the king of Babel, for they are prophesying lies to you that will result in your being removed far from your land with my driving you out so that you perish. But the nation that puts its neck under the yoke of the king of Babel and serves him, that nation I will allow to remain on their own soil, says Adonai. They will farm it and they will live there. That's kind of surprising words, isn't it? See, Jeremiah tells us that God operates behind the scenes to set up nations, to bring rulers into power, and so we are to subject ourselves to them. But this is not something that sets so easily with Western Christians. The vast majority of us living in democracies. Therefore, in verse 2, when Paul says it is wrong for believers to resist those in authority over them, it is with this God principle in mind. However, I'm not sure exactly what Paul's getting at in verse 3 when he says that rulers, presumably all rulers, he didn't make a distinction, are no terror to good conduct but only to bad. And that all we have to do as a believer is to do good and then there's no reason to fear any ruler. That's what he says. I mean, I wonder how he felt a very few years later when Nero took over Rome and had, Rome and had Paul executed. Would he have said it is just the ruler's God-given prerogative to burn Christians at the stake simply for his own amusement? As did, as did Nero. And therefore there should be no resistance or effort to save one's own life? What would Paul have said about Adolf Hitler? Would Paul have seen it as the believer's duty to submit to Hitler and to not resist the government-ordered genocide and extermination of millions of undesirables and deplorables? Is it Paul's intent to say that believers should have aided Hitler in his madness if so ordered? As literally thousands upon thousands of German Christians did? And this because God put him in control of the German government. And so believers would be fighting against God to resist Nero or Hitler. That's a hit hurt, isn't it? In fact, during World War II, this was the official position of the German Lutheran Church. And to a degree, the Catholic Church as well as elements of other Christian denominations. So, were those who helped Hitler kill millions right to obey him? Let me not keep you in suspense. The answer is, heaven forbid. This is why, as we've talked about endlessly, we must never take a few words or a verse or two out of the Bible, make it a doctrine in itself, 
or make it the final word on any matter of faith. Listen now to a very different viewpoint about obeying the higher powers, those in government, religious or secular, who rule over us that we find in the book of Acts. Acts 5, 20 through 29, it reads like this. Go, stand in the temple court and keep telling the people all about this new life. And after hearing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and they began to teach. Now the high priest and his associates came and called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, that is of Israel's whole assembly of elders, and sent to jail to have them brought. But the officers who went did not find them in prison. So they returned and reported, we found the jail securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened it, we found nobody inside. Well, when the captain of the temple police and the head priest heard these things, they were puzzled and they wondered what would happen next. Then someone came and reported to them, listen, the men you ordered put in prison, they're standing in the temple court teaching the people. The captain and his officers went and brought them, but not with force, because they were afraid of being stoned by the people. They conducted them to the Sanhedrin, where the high priest demanded them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Now look here, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and moreover you are determined to make us responsible for this man's death. And Peter and the other emissaries answered him, Well, we must obey God, not man. How can we forget the story of Stephen who refused to stop preaching Yeshua's name at the order of the duly formed Sanhedrin so he was stoned to death. And by the way, Paul was in full agreement. The point is that the halakha, the religious ruling that Paul is making to open Romans chapter 13 has a far greater context than merely the paragraph or even the chapter in which it's found. Greater even than the context of the entire book of Romans, of which it's, this is just a tiny part. Paul himself refused to obey Roman government officials, and he was martyred for it. See, when we take the totality of the Bible as our context, instead of a dozen words we come to realize that while we are indeed obligated as believers to subject ourselves to the rulers of the nation to which we are part, that does not mean that God expects us to obey the humans who rule when their demands goes directly against His biblical laws and commandments. Paul also brings home the point in verse 5. That while it's all well and good to obey the government for fear that you'll be punished if you don't, it's far better to obey because you know it's the right thing to do. But then in verse 6, Paul speaks of the sorts of things we ought to do without question when the government orders it. He says we ought to pay our taxes. We ought to pay our monetary debts. Even pay honor and respect to those who are our debtors and to those in authority over us. Whatever we lawfully, morally, ethically owe, it needs to be paid.
goodness how that principle has been overturned in modern times. Let me translate that to you in modern application. Students, you incurred debt to go to college and now you feel buried in monetary obligation. That it never occurred to you that it was possibly an unwise venture to take on so much debt for an education changes nothing. You owe it. Pay it. Those who have heavy medical debt because for whatever reason you don't have insurance but you certainly wanted good medical care and gladly received it, pay your debt whether you think it's more than it ought to be or not. For those who pay income taxes, any other kind of taxes, pay your taxes, all of them. Whether you think them fair and equitable or not, your government has made those taxation laws, they are valid. And from God's viewpoint, the issue of taxation is not one of morality. God has made no ordinances concerning how much tax is too much. And in a number of Bible references, he makes it quite clear that we are to pay our taxes to our governments. Here's Christ's instructions to his followers, and perhaps the most famous of those references in Matthew 22, 16-21. They sent him some of their disciples and some members of Herod's party, and they said, Rabbi, we know that you tell the truth. And you really teach what God's way is. You aren't concerned with what other people think about you. Since you pay no attention to a person's status. So tell us your opinion. Does the Torah permit paying taxes to the Roman Emperor or not? Yeshua, however, knowing their malicious intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used to pay taxes. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose name and picture are these? The emperor's, they replied. And Yeshua said to them, okay, then give the emperor what belongs to the emperor. Give to God what belongs to God. So here's the bottom line. Believers, Christian or Messianic, we are to leave no debt unpaid. Whether that debt is to God, to an individual, to a business, or to our government. That debt can even be a debt of gratitude, a debt of respect, a debt of forgiveness, a debt of money. But the one debt that we should never stop repaying is the debt of love to our fellow man. There is no beginning or end to that debt. There is no time limit in our lives when we can say we've paid enough love. We can call it paid in full. Paul reminds us that it is the fundamental Torah commandment to love our neighbor. It is not simply a nice thought. Yeshua affirmed this. In the book of Matthew 7.12 Always treat others as you'd like to treat them to treat you. That sums up the teaching of the Torah and the prophets.
Now, this while this might sound to a Christian as though it's the beginning of a new faith creed for believers, it's not. Listen to this short excerpt from the Jewish Talmud. In Tractate Shabbat 31a, we read this. On another occasion it happened that a certain heathen came before Shammai and said to him, Make me a proselyte, on condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Therefore he repulsed him with the builder's cubit, which was in his hand. And when he went before Hillel, he said to him, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah. All the rest is the commentary thereof. Now go and learn it. What Christ taught, what Paul taught about loving our neighbor was a bedrock principle of the Old Testament and of Judaism. It was not an innovative new Christian doctrine that in time came to be known as the Golden Rule. Let's not miss what's being said. To not do to your neighbor what you won't done, don't want done to you is simply the negative way of saying love your neighbor as yourself. And that loving your neighbor is loving God because he commands us to love our neighbor in the Torah. Working together in perfect unity, loving your neighbor and loving your God with all your being is what the entire Bible is about. Everything else we read in the scriptures, Old or New Testament, even the Ten Commandments, is but commentary on those two principles. So however we might interpret a biblical passage, when you're studying, if it doesn't conform to both of those principles, you've misunderstood it. At the same time, don't ever think that anything God tells us to do or not to do in the Bible would ever contradict either of those two principles. For example, to think, as is common in Christianity today, that executing a convicted murderer as God ordains it in His Word would be violating the principle of love your neighbor is fundamentally wrong-minded. To think that standing against homosexuality as God stands firmly against it in His Word is violating the principle of love your neighbor is fundamentally wrong-minded. And the reason that a large block of the church has adopted this view that it is wrong to practice a life for a life or it's wrong to condemn homosexuality as a sin or even to prohibit gay marriage is because these Christians don't understand or believe that the root of every commandment of God, Old Testament or New Testament, is based entirely on love your neighbor and love God. See, if we don't study and trust God's biblical, biblical commandments as truth and light, then we don't know how to love our neighbor. We don't know how to love God. Instead, every man does what's right in his own eyes. That is sin. The Christian propensity is to make it up as we go. 
because it feels better to our personal sensibilities and it pleases the world to no end for us to conform to them. But such a road is leading to the ruination of our families and our societies and it's dangerously damaging our relationship with the Lord. Well, beginning in verse 8, Paul concludes his instructions concerning loving your neighbor by quoting four of the Ten Commandments of Exodus. So clearly the Ten Commandments were alive and well in the era of Second Temple Judaism. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, meaning to unjustly kill a human being. Don't steal, don't covet. Those are the four. Now I must say I'm not at all certain why Paul would omit the law to honor your father and mother as it too of course pertains to loving our fellow man. It might be that to Paul those who are your immediate family are not necessarily considered as part of your neighbor in the common sense of it in his day. Um, That would not mean that the family gets less but rather even greater consideration and love since they are close blood relation. but, But all that's just my speculation is why he didn't say anything about that one. For many believers, though, there's always this nagging question. Who is my neighbor? Clearly, in Leviticus 19, a neighbor is a fellow Israelite, another Hebrew. Listen to Leviticus 19, 15-18. Do not be unjust in judging. Show neither partiality to the poor, nor deference to the mighty, but with justice judge your neighbor. Do not go around spreading slander among your people, but also don't stand idly by when your neighbor's life is at stake. I am at an eye. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you won't carry sin because of him. Do not take vengeance on or bear a grudge against any of your people. Rather, love your neighbor as yourself. I am at an eye. So loving your neighbor as it was originally given meant to love a fellow Hebrew of any tribe. However, by Yeshua's day, the tribal system among Hebrews was nearly dead. It was mostly just an ancient memory that had more to do with biblical prophecy and certain birthrights given to descendants of certain tribes. For instance, The Messiah had to come from the tribe of Judah. Priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. So because tribalism had little bearing on the Jews any longer, and because God included Gentile membership in the covenants with Israel, provided those Gentiles trusted in Yeshua as Lord and Savior, then we find Christ clearly expanding the definition of neighbor beyond the physical, fleshly, or even national Israel. Luke 10, 25-37. An expert in the Torah stood up to try to trap him by asking him, Rabbi, what should I do to obtain eternal life? But Yeshua said to him, What is written in the Torah? How do you read it? He answered, You're to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your understanding, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the right answer. Yeshua said, do this and you will have life. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Yeshua, then who's my neighbor? Well, taking up the question, Yeshua said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. 
They stripped him naked, they beat him up, then they went off leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed him by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite who reached the place and saw him also passed by on the other side. But a man from Samaria who was traveling came upon him. And when he saw him, he was moved with compassion. So he went up to him and he put oil and wine on his wounds and he bandaged him and then he sent him on his own donkey and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two days wages. He gave them to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. If you spend more than this, I'll pay you back when I return. Of these three, which one seems to you to have become the neighbor of the man who fell among the robbers? And he answered the one who showed mercy towards him. Yeshua said to him, Then you go and do as he did. I want you to notice something else significant about this passage from Luke. A Torah teacher. By definition, really, a Pharisee. Immediately answered Yeshua's question about eternal life by quoting the dual underlying principles of Torah about loving your neighbor and loving God. Yeshua commended him on being correct. Remember that a Torah teacher, a Pharisee, was a representative of Judaism. He was a representative of the synagogue system, not of the temple. So even this Pharisee who was a scholar of tradition, a scholar of halakha, more than actual biblical Torah, even he held these two principles as the basis for his own scriptural understanding. So we must not be overly harsh on Second Temple Judaism or even on the Pharisees and think that they had gone so far as to abandon God's biblical Torah and replace it with their own traditions. Now, while you might not recognize it as such, verse 11 on to the end of Romans chapter 13 is about the end times. See, Paul says, you know at what point in history we stand. Now, I've mentioned in earlier lessons that undeniably Paul believes that he is living in the end times. See, he expects Yeshua's return at any moment. It's why Paul behaves and tries to motivate others to salvation with such zeal and urgency to his bones. Paul believes time is very short. But Paul wasn't the only one who believed that the end was imminent. In the apocryphal book of Enoch, Chapter 51, we read, In those days the elect one will arise, and he will choose the righteous and holy from among them, because the day for their being saved has come near. See, Paul speaks of awakening out of our sleep. Now, I don't think he means this negatively. That is, that people have not been paying attention, or that they have intentionally ignored reality. Rather, it seems to me that he's saying it has been so very long since the promise of God to Abraham 
was made. So very long that the Jews have lived in exile or under the harsh hand of a foreign occupier. So very long. Thus the prophecy that Israel and the Jews will be delivered has been as if in a coma. But the coma is ending. And now is the time for Israel to awaken because the time of their deliverance is upon them. I think that interpretation is backed up by Paul's words that the night is almost over and the day is almost here. And since darkness is always a biblical metaphor for evil and light is always a biblical biblical metaphor for good, then we can better understand the words that follow about putting off behavior that occurs in darkness, putting on behavior that occurs in daylight. He then goes on to list a few behaviors that occur in darkness that needs to stop, especially among believers. No doubt this would have been a particular problem in the city of Rome where the recipients of his letter resided. Stop partying, stop getting drunk, stop engaging in sexual immorality, he tells them. Stop every excess, cease being quarrelsome and jealous. Now most of these exhortations we can understand because of their plain meaning. Without getting into detail, however, I want to reiterate that especially when it comes to sexual immorality, unfortunately, large segments of the church have today utterly abandoned any pretense of prohibiting it. Those segments ordain gay ministers, they sanctify gay marriages, they have no issue with couples living together and even having children without the benefit of marriage. And adultery is thought to just be a private matter. Why do they believe this way? Because they've abandoned sexual morality in the same way they've abandoned God's word as the infallible source of truth and instead are following man-made doctrines. Therefore, the definitions of terms like immorality and even love have been redefined to become more popular. Well, Paul ends this chapter by essentially saying that due to where we are in history, meaning when he was in his time, it's a waste of valuable time to do all these wrong things as the final grains of sand drain out of the hourglass. Rather, we need to be productive for the kingdom of God while we still can. How do we do this? Paul says, by clothing ourselves with Yeshua. The mental picture of clothing ourselves with Yeshua was mostly meaningful to the Jews of Paul's audience because such a motif was a common one in Judaism and it regularly referred to righteousness. So we are to put on the righteousness given to us as a free gift on account of our trust in Christ's sacrifice and in His perfect faithfulness 
and get on with the business of living a redeemed life of victory as opposed to our former life as a slave to sin. We'll begin Romans chapter 14 next time.